Hey guys, welcome back to the Nutrition Expedition. Before today's episode, we just wanted to say, we're not qualified specialists. If you have any issues, see a healthcare professional. The daily posts, including recipes, exercises, nutrition facts, and calorie comparisons, follow us on Instagram at The Nutrition Expedition. Peace. Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're joined um, by, yeah, by an OCD specialist. Um, I've wanted to have her on uh, since I've had my struggles with with the same disorder, um, and I wanted to get her on to really get the word out and, and really get people to understand a bit more in depth of of uh, what is obsessive compulsive disorder. And today we welcome uh, Chrissy Hodges to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I do want to clarify. I'm not a therapy specialist, yeah. but if you want to define specialist as someone who has OCD, then yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a specialist in living with OCD. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's going to be an interesting episode from my perspective because I really don't know much at all about OCD. Obviously, I've talked to Matteo about himself, and I've just known it as this uh, cliche of what OCD is and not actually what it truly is. So it's going to be good from a perspective of someone that is learning just as the audience will hope. So to the first question, I just wanted to ask, can you please let us know a little about your early life and childhood? Sure. So, um, and again, just thank you for having me on. And I'm really excited to be able to share this. And, and I agree, a lot of people have a wrong, the wrong misconception about OCD. And it's really so important for us to, to educate people on what it really is, because there's so many people out there suffering and don't even know. Um, so I, I was one of those people, uh, and for me, it showed up when I was eight. I, I, you know, kind of normal everyday childhood. I played Atari, you know, played outside. This is back in the eighties. And, um, um, one day at school, a kid got sick in the classroom, which, you know, kids get sick in classrooms. Right. And, um, but this time in particular, it, it happened right next to me and I had this severe reaction to it. And I, what I now know was a massive anxiety attack. And um, so it felt very much like dissociation, which is not being able to control your body or not be able to ground. And um, the only thing that really worked for me in the, in the middle of that was to do this weird counting compulsion. Um, I didn't know what, what it was at first. I just thought, okay, if you just count and breathe, like, you know, you, I started to feel better. Well, for an eight-year-old to have such a traumatic experience and not know what was going on, I was trying to figure out in my brain, like, what just happened? I mean, it was like my life changed in one minute, and I knew it, even as an eight-year-old, something has changed. And the, the, the only thing I could think of was my upbringing was really religious. My father is a minister in the South, a retired minister in the South. So the only thing I really knew was religion at that point. So I did think to myself, oh my gosh, if I feel bad and I've had a bad experience, I must have done something wrong. So I then developed scrupulosity, which is a form of OCD, a religious scrupulosity, which is a form of OCD where it gets involved um, in your OCD themes. You do compulsions 
around trying to figure out whether you're a good person or, or if you've done something horrible. And I immediately started doing prayer compulsions and trying to figure out if I had sinned and this was God's punishment. Um, and this was all happening within the span of like an hour in the back of my third grade classroom. And, uh, you know, and still having that fear of vomit. And the rest of the day, I started to notice things like I would avoid people that had been sick before. I avoided things on the playground. And then when I went home that night, all I wanted to do was tell my mom what had happened. But there was something inside of me that was like, don't tell. And I just listened to that and said, okay, I'll never tell anybody this is happening. Um, but I just knew something had monumentally shifted in my life. Um, and from then on, every single day was a full on ritual. I would wake up in the mornings, severely anxious to go to school in case someone got sick. When I was in school, I did compulsions all day about avoiding things or ruminating or reassurance, reassurance seeking mentally reviewing the people around me to see, does that person look sick? Was, you know, and um, I never knew that it was a mental illness. It felt so real to me. And, and, and again, there was just this fear of disclosing it because of the scrupulosity piece. Like my parents would be disappointed in me if they knew I had done something so bad that God was punishing me. Now you may think to yourself, this sounds really delusional <laughs> and you sound psychotic, but I knew it didn't make sense, but it felt so real. I couldn't, stop believing the excuse. I couldn't stop believing that this had to be the story that was, that, that was propelling all of this. Um, there was no other explanation. So I just thought, okay, this has to be it. This was my burden to bear. So then when I became, a, so I lived with this for years, nobody ever knew. They just called me the anxious child. Little did they know. And then into my teenage years, I started having like violent intrusive thoughts. I started having intrusive thoughts about being possessed by the devil. Um, I had intrusive thoughts about, um, I had intrusive thoughts about harming kids. Um, I was on a, a vacation with someone and I was in the car with some little kids and they were throwing stuff at each other. And one of the kids hit the other one in the face and, you know, it was kind of funny. It was a stuffed animal, but I was watching the kid and her face all scrunched up before she started crying, I started laughing. And then I was like, why are you laughing at a child in pain? And my brain was like, Ooh, what if you want kids to be in pain? And I was like, <gasps> and so I had that same panic that I did about the fear of vomit and like took off running. And I was like, Oh my God, do I want to harm kids? That one didn't stick. And then I had, um, an intrusive thought about, um, what if, what if I'm gay when I was 14? And so I was, hanging out with a friend. We started talking about sex. I was still very much under the, the umbrella of scrupulosity. So I was terrified that I shouldn't do anything sinful. That was kind of a, a compulsion. And we started talking about sex and I thought that was wrong and I'm going to get punished with bad thoughts. That was like the mindset, the OCD mindset. And instead of being able to tell her that I just went along with it. And then that night I started thinking about it and I was like, I can't believe I talked about that stuff. Why would I say things like that? And all of a sudden I had a visual in my head pop up of her and her boyfriend having sex. And of course I'm like, Oh my God, don't think about that. Why would you visualize that? And then it was just her with no clothes on. And I thought, 
why are you thinking about this? What is, why would, what, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And my brain went, well, maybe you're gay. And I, it was the same reaction that I had when I had the, the, you know, when it first showed up about the fear of vomiting, it was this, oh my gosh, wait, what, what is happening? Like, what does this mean? Is this true? Um, I knew rationally that wasn't the case. Like I was 14, I was boy crazy. It was ridiculous. Um, and even at my age in the South at that time in the States, which is very, very conservative, I didn't feel like being gay was wrong. So it wasn't this homophobia. It was just, I knew I wasn't gay and I didn't feel like this was an appropriate, you know, it, it wasn't an appropriate thought because I didn't want that. And so it was very distressing of like, well, is this how it happens? And there's no internet. I couldn't like get on the internet and be like, Hey, can you turn gay? You know, that wouldn't have helped because reassurance seeking doesn't help with city. But, um, from that day on that, that coupled with the fear of vomiting overarching the scrupulosity, I was just entrenched with those three fears just day in day out. I went in and out of depression, but in very interesting, I had this larger than life persona. No one knew. I didn't tell anybody. I was wildly successful as a teenager, like on the outside, like super involved in high school, you know, in, in sports, pretty popular among my peers, um, graduated with honors, you know, went to college, you know, full ride to college. Uh, and then in college, my cousin died and that was a trauma and a loss and trauma and loss when you're holding up a major mental illness is, is it's hard. And, um, it, I sunk. And again, the whole time I didn't know I had OCD. This was in the nineties. We didn't have a way of Googling. Um, and, uh, I attempted suicide after that, about six months after he died because the depression was so severe, I just couldn't move anymore. Um, and I want to make something clear that the fear of my, like not knowing my sexual orientation, which is very common with people with OCD is not, um, I wanted to die because I was potentially going to be gay. That is not what this is about because a lot of times that gets misconstrued. It, it, it's more of when I feel like I'm going to throw up, I would rather blow my brains out than throw up. The fear is so real. Um, is that rational? No, it's stupid. Throw up, get over with, which is what a rational person would say. But when you are debilitated by fear, you cannot think of anything worse than having to face that fear. And so, um, feeling like I was going to have to live a life that wasn't what I wanted and I was trapped in that was the reason why I thought, and then coupled with crippling depression because of the sheer exhaustion of doing compulsions, that was why I attempted suicide. Um, and I was lucky. I survived and was sent to a psychiatric facility, a locked facility. And, um, I just happened to have a doctor who listened and um didn't just medicate me to to the point where i couldn't um articulate anything and he diagnosed me with ocd and then a year later i found dr stephen Phillipson in new york it was like the first site i've ever seen it was on aol dial-up in 1998 
<laughs> and he had all this information about pure OCD, which is the community of people who have um, intrusive thoughts with mental rituals. And I read his article, Thinking the Unthinkable. And the first thing in that article was Bob was having sex with his wife. And all of a sudden in the middle of orgasm, he thought about his friend, Fred. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is it. And I was lucky enough that he did therapy with me over the phone. Exposure response prevention therapy. And within a couple months, the fear was completely eradicated and I was able to move on relatively move on with life. That's, I mean, I've, I, I had a lot of trauma from it all, but still, Thanks. that's in a nutshell, my childhood and teenage years. Thank you a lot for sharing. And it's amazing that you're, you're so open and honest about your journey as a kid. And I just thank you for that. And something else is, at what stage did you tell your family about all of this kind of stuff? Like, and as well, the depression, everything. So my family knew you know, and we've talked about it before, they knew before the suicide attempt something was wrong. I mean, I'd lost like 15 pounds. I was, you know, I wasn't, it was lethargic, but you know, I think suicide is so hard to talk about. Suicide is not something that you're like, Hey, I know some notice something's off. Are you thinking about killing yourself? There's a lot of myths about talking about it. And I think a lot of fear, um, and shame on the family too. So, in hindsight, everybody was like, we knew something was wrong, but no one ever asked, hey, something seems wrong. Are you, like I, my stepmother actually asked me at lunch one time, are you okay? And I was like on the verge of saying, I'm not. And then there was something that was like, you know, not that it wasn't the right question um, and it was not her fault, but if she had said, something's wrong, are you suicidal? it would have been a different conversation because I may have like even just a facial expression. Um, so the long answer to that question is nobody knew any of this until my suicide attempt, wow. which is really devastating for them yeah. and traumatic. Um, but I didn't know either. I didn't know it was OCD. I just, I really believed it was some weird scrupulosity punishment from God. As delusional as that sounds, I can't express how real it felt to me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you sharing those stories, I, I can, uh, it's, it's weird because I can relate to it, but I can also understand how crazy it might sound to someone, um, that doesn't encounter that sort of stuff. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, you know, it, that's, I feel like one of the scariest things about this mental illness is that there's some of the topics just feel so shameful to talk about that it sounds incredibly weird because it's never been talked about really in a large scale. So yeah, it's, it's incredible that you've shared that story and, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will be listening with, with a puzzled face right now as to what, what <laughs> it's not at all what they thought it probably was. So if you, maybe you could do, you just break down um, what OCD is for people that have, you know, have no, no knowledge at all about it, just very simple terms of what it is and um, yeah, what it is most, most of all. Yeah. So, um, you know, what the, the problem with the marketing of OCD is that OCD is very much trivialized in the media and just in the social aspect. It's very much this tagline. It's very much, um, monk or, you know, as good as it gets, which was probably as 
close as a good trail as we could get to OCD, unfortunately, um, on in on some fronts. But it's very much this quirky, I need to organize, I need to clean. Now, I think people think, yeah, you can be severe in washing your hands. But no CD came out with a study last year saying that 67% of people who live with OCD actually live with um, what the community name is a pure. So that's a large percentage of people who live with intrusive thoughts and mental rituals. And this is only people that have been polled. I mean, I lived for 12 years and had no idea and thought that the entire experience was real. Majority of my clients that I meet with say I was on the verge of suicide before I decided to just Google, am I a pedophile? Am I a murderer? Am I, you you know, whatever the intrusive thought is. Do I have sexual feelings about my family? Because these are the major themes that people experience. And the reason why you don't have, the reason why you don't hear about it as weird as it sounds, this is not, this is not shit that sells. Nobody wants to hear about, I'm worried I'm a pedophile, right? (laughs) But that is one of the most common themes that people with OCD live with. And they are put in this box of shame because you can't talk about it because therapists don't understand it. And the media is certainly not going to understand it because you're all all of a sudden going to get labeled if you say out loud, I have thoughts. I I have intrusive, terrifying thoughts about harming another human being. When the difference is very much fear versus desire. Now, that's a simplistic way of putting it because there's so many nuances of that. But um, just to kind of break it down, obsessive compulsive disorder is uh, the component of having an obsession. So the obsession where a lot of times, the, you know, when we, when we talk about obsession just in general, it's like, oh, I'm obsessed with this band or, oh, I'm obsessed with this face product or whatever. That's very um, satisfying. In, in OCD, an obsession is an intrusive unwanted, distressing thought. So every single one of us have those thoughts. Every, every person on the planet has distressing thoughts, but your filter, which is your amygdala, the filter filters these thoughts and is it, it because you're not having a reaction to them. Um, that filter is, is going, okay, we're not in danger. We're not in danger. We're not in danger. Um, the, Obsession compulsion is where the the malfunction is. So in our amygdala, the malfunction is, um, I always call it, this is so not scientific, but I'm just going to tell you, this is the way I describe it. The amygdala has a glitch. And the glitch is when you have intrusive thoughts every once in a while, an intrusive thought escapes. The amygdala is very primitive. It's the, like the reptilian part of the brain. It keeps us alive. It's survival. It doesn't care about anything but keeping us alive. It's like when you're driving and a car swerves in the lane and you swerve out to avoid dying. You don't think, you act, right? That's the amygdala being like, oh my God, I just saved you. <laughs> and, and then you're like, oh my God, I almost just died, but you didn't know it at the time, you just acted. So the compulsion happens when the intrusive thought, like I described, I know this is not scientific, glitches into the frontal lobe, which is where we deal with logic. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, why did I just have a thought about my sexual orientation? What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean I'm straight? Does that mean I'm gay? Does that 
am trans? Am I asexual? Am I bi? So those are all under the umbrella of sexual orientation. And then the moment that you do the compulsion, so obsession, intrusive thought, compulsion, react. It's a behavioral action. The amygdala then wakes up and goes, oh my God, we're in danger. We're in danger. She, Chrissy just acted, so we're in danger. Oh my God. And then the subsequent anxiety and everything. And then now you're, you're, you're talking to your amygdala behavioral. You're doing compulsions to try to figure out what is this? What does this intrusive thought mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And the amygdala's like, oh my God, Chrissy's in danger. I've got to keep warning her. I've got to keep warning her. Um, and so the disorder comes where you get stuck in that cycle and you have no idea how to communicate with that part of the brain. And it goes on and on and on for years and years and years. Studies tell us it takes individuals between 12 and 17 years to get diagnosed and treated for this type of OCD. It's all OCD, but, but this specific type of OCD um, correctly. 12 to 17 wow. years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's the sort of bracket you were in, right? 12 years, you said, I think? It was 12 years? Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, once again, I'll, I'll emphasize it. Just sound, I, I, I can tell you how confronting a lot of the stuff sounds, but it's, it's, I think, very important to talk about it and to raise awareness because it shouldn't be seen as weird or, or you know. It's just like any mental health It's just like disorder, anything, yeah. you know, like because it should be. I mean, also, I mean, we're going to get onto this about uh, stigmas of all mental, you know, mental illnesses, like people saying, oh, are you depressed? Like, oh, you, you look so depressed or uh, I'm so OCD or what else? Like, oh, you look autistic. People the weather are is saying, bipolar. Yeah, yeah, the weather is bipolar. You know, that person must be bipolar because they're angry now that they were sad two minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah, they were happy two minutes ago. So um, maybe just move on to that, actually. I think what what is your opinion on stigmas overall and, and also about... OCD stigmas and how they really impact society. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, I think that's two separate questions. So um, once I, once I talk, remind me about the second question, how OCD impacts the society. Um, I think in general, the, the idea that it's just okay to not use strength-based language around mental health disorders and that we don't have enough people willing to stand up um, is a reflection of the stigma and shame surrounding people having mental illness in general. Um, I say that as being an advocate for about six, seven or eight years at this point um, and working in, you know, as tough of the environment as the state institution of Colorado and then in doing what I do now, um, we would like to think that the stigma is better but if you were to confront someone who says, oh my God, my ex, they're just so crazy, they're so borderline. And you say, you know, hey, borderline disorder is a very ser- serious illness. People very, you know, suffer, there's treatment available. That person is gonna go, oh, just lighten up. Like whatever, it's just a saying. Well, okay, it's just a saying, but when we allow that language to exist, then what we're doing is we're allowing people to continue to believe that these illnesses are demonized and there's something wrong with those of us that live with it. So the more we allow it to happen, the more it pushes so many of us down into 
the shadows and were too afraid to tell anybody. Um, so I can't remember Dave Chappelle. Oh, I can't remember what he called it. It was about like the um, racial issue here in in America that we faced recently with George Floyd. Um, but he was talking about like kind of the the majority, like so, something about how it, we, you know, when, when we when we really recognize like the, just the intolerance, the majority of an intolerance, um, that, that's when you know that we've crossed a threshold. So where, you know, we used to think it's okay to say really awful things about bipolar because it's so funny or schizophrenia. Um, you know, when, when, we, when we can still do that and think it's funny and people really, you don't have droves of people coming in and being like, hey, that is not cool. Do not say that anymore. And it, we don't want to shame people, but at the same time, we do want to silence that. We want to plant seeds in people to say, these people matter with mental illness um, and your language matters because the more that we allow people to stigmatize with the language, the less likely people are going to ask for help. And the more they stay in the shadows. And as Brene Brown says, shame can't live in the light. And so when you're in the shadows, you're just entrenched in shame. Um, so it's, you know, that's why I'm so candid with what I talk about with those. When I first started doing advocacy, I was really scared. Like when you start talking about pedophilia themes, there's CD, like you gotta know, like people are gonna come at you, right? <laughs> like they're, they don't understand it. They think that you're a pedophile sympathizer or whatever. But I, the, actually when I first started doing it, I, the, I, the more I realized these people need a voice. They need someone to stand up for them, even if they're still like behind me as I'm saying it, it's going to empower them to come out of the shadows and talk more about it. Because that's the only way we get people to start taking it seriously. No one is going to be like, you know, the, the, like OCD in general. If you go and Google OCD cleaning companies, you'll see what, hundreds of them probably. No one's gonna start a cigarette company called cancer, right? No one will, but they're still doing it for OCD, which means we still need a lot of people to start standing up, not in a shame way, but more of an educational way of like, this is a serious illness and people die from it. Hmm. Yes. I, I'll just tag something on now that Lockie asked. I think I remember seeing Chloe uh, Kardashian. I don't know if you know mm. about this. Did you? Did, she started her own business called Close ED, which is oh, about yeah. her cleaning and rituals oh, about yeah. how neat her pantry is in her house. Um, yes. And she got she actually did get a lot of heat from uh, from a lot of people about it. Uh, and I don't think she does it anymore. But like, mm-hmm. I remember seeing that and I was like, whoa. But then again, you know, I I'll, I'll say this right now. I remember about a year before I was diagnosed with, with this, I said that term, I'm like, oh, I'm OCD about this. And then now I look back and I'm like, oh, I'm so stupid. But then people say it to me when I, you know, if I disclose it to them, you know, only people close to me, um, and they'll answer the back the same thing. Oh yeah, me too, like I like this and I want this clean and this and that. And I don't feel like I need to go shame them about it because I just feel like it's misunderstood, you know what I mean? It's just so, education. Yeah, I just feel bad, like I, I just chuckle it off and go, ah, oh, you know, it sucks that it's not like that, but I'm not gonna go make a big fuss about it in public and then it's like this whole thing. So 
it, um, it, it comes down to education. Yeah. It's just like anything. Education. And I, I work with a lot of kids with autism and I hear people say, oh, you're so retarded all the time and it makes me cringe. And I, I try to tell yeah. them like, I work with kids who have this and I see their family struggle and I can only imagine if they heard those terms around them that they would be mortified like try to try to change the way you're you're using that language and it's not that's not us going soft or whatever it's more just education around these terms and it's not just OCD and it's not just um, the word retarded or spaz or any of that but it's it's all these terms we need to be more informed and educated strength-based language is one of the hardest it's the it's the hardest thing to get people to buy into and, and it's the hardest thing to realize that you are you, you know I, I i can totally re- relate to i used to use language that was stigmatizing and i just didn't know until i knew um and so that's what's so hard about, about strength-based language is making the choice to go i'm not going to say things that stigmatize a community of people um probably the biggest just a quick story when i worked in the state institution and we started doing trainings around street-based language one of the things they said is monitor the things that you say that might be stigmatizing to individuals with mental illness and i was like oh this is going to be easy like i'm so good at this and then i was in the milieu the next day meeting with a client and they told me a story and I screamed across the middle of you, that's so crazy. And everybody was like, and I thought, oh my God. <laughs> and I didn't even realize that that language in that setting could harm people. They're in a state mental institution. I'm screaming, you're crazy. And, but I didn't know it was like kind of funny. Yeah. And then I realized I have to be really careful and it actually isn't that much of a burden. If something hurts someone, just don't say it. That's all. It's just a matter of choice. Yeah. And if you're more informed, like, we don't want to stop anyone from saying anything, technically. It's just, like, be informed and then make your decision on what you want to do with that information. You know? And know no time and a place as well. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, I mean, people can say whatever they want, but, it, you know, it, you just got to know that you're going to be looked at a certain way if you use that and you're informed about something. So... Which, are, right. which most people right. we know who would say you're so that's so retarded, definitely know about you know retardation as a as an actual you know. Well, I feel that like still comes down to education and not having that real world understanding of you don't maturity. see anyone in your life with any sort of physical or mental disability, so then you just don't think about how how that can harm someone. Yeah, yeah. So that I think again that comes down to education, even yeah. though they know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's also boundaries. I mean, if people, you know, I've had people before that have said things to me, of, oh yeah, I'm OCD or whatever, and I and I just say, hey, I, by the way, I almost died from this. Could you please just refrain from saying it? And if someone says it again, then it's like, hey, okay, this is the second time I've asked you. Like, I'm not trying to be a jerk. Like, but you know, can you just please not? Um, you have to teach people how they can and can't treat you. One and and two, like. You have to live in, by example of like how how to show people that their language can really harm that it can harm you and that's okay too and so I I've never a jerk to people about it but I'm certainly um, yeah. I try to educate and inform in a way of like hey let me explain to you why this is harmful and yeah it's up to them at that point yeah. it, there's nothing yeah. I can do other than plant the seed yeah. 
And now we'll just move on to more of the therapy-based uh, conversation and, and, you know, a bit of a lighter, <laughs> a lighter subject. Uh, but what are the most common ways people uh, can deal with OCD when they're seeing therapists? What are the, like, the main ways that, that therapy, uh, main things pet therapists use to uh, try to break it down and really help this person live their life without, you know, worrying about everything so much? So the important thing to understand about OCD is it is not something that you um, kind of related to this, the uh, strength-based language and um, the stigmatizing of OCD. Um, if you if you have OCD, it's disordered. You are spending six to eight to ten to twelve or plus hours every single day. Um, and unfortunately, when we're dealing with the, the community name Pure OCD, which is intrusive thoughts and mental rituals, I could be living a normal life and nobody around me would know that I am literally doing compulsions 12 hours a day because we learn very quickly to put on an acting base because we don't want anyone to know. And so um, it's really important to understand that if someone is living with OCD, it is a, it is a disorder. It is disrupting their life um, and they get exhausted. And then typically it's going to be coupled with depression, which once that happens and you're dealing with the OCD on one side and then the depression on another, it's so, so, so important to, to seek specialized help. So OCD has specialized treatment. It, ha it is a behavioral, it's an anxiety disorder, but it's treated by behavioral therapy. It is not treated by trauma therapy. It's not treated by hypnotherapy. It's not treated, treated by talk or psychoanalytical therapy at all. It's behavioral therapy. As I explained before, there is um, a malfunction in the amygdala, which the language of the amygdala is behavioral. So a therapist is going to teach you through exposure response prevention, essentially a new language. They're going to teach you the language of behavior. So you will begin to recognize when you are doing compulsions by doing exposures. So you will expose yourself to something that you have had intrusive thoughts about. And then you spend time preventing the response. So it's exposure response prevention. And you do this the same way you would learn how to ski or play basketball or learn to cook. You want to learn a skill, you get a teacher, you practice, you practice, you practice, you practice, you practice, you practice. And then eventually you start to do that without thinking. The best, I always use the example of dribbling a basketball. If you really want to play basketball and you want to dribble a basketball, you cannot go out there and just dribble once a week and expect to be able to dribble it without thinking, right? You go and practice every day for 30 minutes or an hour. Within a month or a month and a half or two months, you're going to, your mind and body starts to connect and you can dribble the basketball and all of a sudden you notice you're doing something else and not thinking about it. This is exposure response prevention to a T. You want to practice this new behavior, this new form of communication, this new recognition of when I'm doing compulsions and I can actually choose to stop them. I can choose to stop ruminating. I can choose to stop seeking reassurance. Um, and so working with a specialist is mandatory. Now, the problem here is this. OCD is not only stigmatized in the media, it's stigmatized in a therapeutic community. 
So when people are getting education about OCD, they spend maybe an hour in their master's or doctorate program on it. And it's usually, hey, when people are hand washing or organizing, you're going to do cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, anyway, on to something else. So this is a very specialized field. So if people aren't exposed to the specialized treatment, then they really are just going to think, oh, I have someone in here and they're washing their hands or they have intrusive thoughts about this. So I'll just do CBT and or God forbid, we'll do trauma therapy because you're having intrusive thoughts because something must have happened in your past, whatever. The, the person experiencing therapy will not get better. In fact, they will probably get worse and they'll start to lose hope. So it's imperative. You have got to go to a therapist who does exposure response prevention therapy. Sometimes therapists will do acceptance commitment therapy, but it's always coupled with exposure response prevention. Yeah. And you've done a lot of YouTube videos, therapies and appearances. Have there been any or a lot of special moments where people have said, hey, you've helped me or anything along those lines? You mean like in my videos and stuff? Well, any, any, any fan reaching out saying, hey, just, just like how they've helped, how, how you helped them sort of thing. Have you had any of those sort of moments? Oh, I do. It's hard to accept though. <laughs> As you can see, I'm like, I don't even know how to answer this. I mean, it's, um, it's, it, yes. I mean, I'm going to just like brace myself and say, like, I feel very grateful and lucky that I've helped people all over the world. Um, it's just hard to feel like I'm worthy of that. It's a humble know, way really. of I'm like getting all bringing it forward. <laughs> That's very humble. Yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, you probably just feel like uh, you're just sharing, saying, your yeah, sharing your story and it's and that's just how it is and what you've gone through. And then like me personally, when I was first going through my things, I was like online straight away after, no, no not straight away, after two, three weeks, um, because I had no idea what it was. Then I got this massive dump of just relief when I, when I heard all of this stuff. And then I saw your videos and stuff like that. And I was like even more relieved. And then I'd go back when I probably shouldn't have to watch it. And you'll know what that means. Um, because reassurance in, with people with OCD is not the greatest thing. So I kept going back to watch to, to relieve my anxiety about to see if I'm going crazy or not. Um, but yeah, you, you probably just think, oh, I've shared my story and then you leave the house and you go to a certain event and people know who you are. And like a couple of years ago, no one, you know, no one came up to you or talked to you about that sort of stuff. So um, I can understand your... It's, it's been wild. Your humility. I mean, it's, yeah. it's wild. And, and it's... Um, I think more so because I did it, I really, it was a passion project because of how lonely and scared I was for so long. I just thought to myself, is it possible that I could provide any sort of way that people at any time of day can click on and know they're not on? Um, and I think I have a really, I'm so not tech savvy, which totally worked to my advantage because <laughs> I don't edit anything. <laughs> yeah. And you know how a lot of people will edit videos? I just do them. And then like one of my videos, I fell out of the chair because I was laughing <laughs> and like my pillow shifted. And I, <laughs> so I think that's what people like about the videos is that it's not, I'm not scripted. It's They're not real. edited. It's 
whatever happens, happens. And sometimes I say the wildest shit and then I'm like all blood red and I'm like, I can't believe I just said that, but I just keep going. And I think that's what people like because yeah. that's what OCD is like. Yeah, they want, they want the real you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, and just, just to move on to more of your advocacy role, um, you have a lot of projects and a lot of things you're involved in, but specifically, can you just tell us a little bit about um, the OCD Game Changers project and what it really yeah. is and, and how you came along it? Yeah, yeah, thank you for asking. So um, OCD Game Changers is something that was born out of just the need here in the States um, especially, well, I guess I can't say the States because Stuart Ralph is part of it from the OCD stories. Um, I, for the first couple of years I was doing advocacy, um, as much as advocacy can fill you up because you feel like you're doing something good and you're really connecting with people, it's very lonely. And it's also, especially on stuff, topics like this, because I'll put out content sometimes and I'm like, I can't believe I just put that stuff out and I, I, I don't have like a support system to go to and be like, Hey, I just said all this online. Like, what do y'all think? You know, it's, it's almost like you just have to sit and wait to see how the community responds. And that can be really anxiety provoking. A few just examples of that would be like when I first came out about talking about substance use, um, the pedophilia theme, um, was big on that one. And there's, there's been a few like, uh, porn addiction when I started talking about that because that's super intertwined with OCD as well. When I started talking, when I did videos on that, I, I had to just sit and wait to see, okay, how's the community get us respond? Did I overshare? And, and so when you don't have a network of people who can support you, um, you can lose motivation. You, you, you know, you can fall back into symptoms and you can fall into shame um, and things like that. So after um, the IOCDF conference in San Francisco, I think it was 2017, I left there and I just felt like, as much as I love this community, I, I need more. Like I need, I need to create a network of people that can help support each other. Cause we all felt that way. A lot of the up and coming advocates at that time felt very lonely. So I created this event in Denver, Colorado and um, I rented an Airbnb and I asked nine advocates to come out and I was like, no one's going to come. Everyone said yes, including Stuart Ralph from the UK. And as soon as he said yes, I was like, shit, now I have to do it. <laughs> and so they all came out. We all stayed together at this Airbnb and I put this event on in Denver, which was just an afterthought because I wanted to do a mastermind which is a, you know, an event where you bring people to like-minded people together and you share what you're doing. How can we support each other? How can we build network? And it was magical. And that became the first game changers event. The next year I added therapists. So I brought in um, Kim Quinlan, Patrick McGrath, Ashley Anistead, Karina Dash, um, Jamie Valdez. We did the event again, stayed in the Airbnb, same thing. It was just so, magical we were starting to create this network of support and that's when i formed it as a nonprofit. um and since then we did have all these events planned and then COVID happened huh. we did we did the event in in march and it was wildly successful again but then literally we did it on march 7th and then 
everything shut down on March 15th. Wow. We were like yeah. the last event hmm. in Colorado probably that happened before the shutdown. So we had to cancel all of our events that we had for the full year, but now we're just focused on how to bring the community together, how to support, um, support people right now. Um, how, like I, what we really do is we elevate, um, advocates that are doing amazing stuff, because if you don't have a support network, you will burn out and you will, you just, you, you won't continue to advocate. We need all the voices that we can get. So our platform is really mainly to elevate people who are doing amazing things. And we also, the great thing is we've started to do focus groups. We have all these massive issues in the OCD community, financial, cultural barriers, um, training, um, awareness, because nobody even knows what intrusive thoughts are. So, so we started focus groups this quarter for therapists. And the next quarter, we'll start them for sufferers and advocates. And we're literally breaking down some of these big problems and working together to solve them and then fundraising for the initiatives. That's so cool. we're doing some really freaking cool stuff. Yeah. Um, basically, Game Changers is going to change everything about the OCD community and the treatment. And that's the, that's the ultimate goal. Awesome. So lastly, I wanted to find out about your book. I know you have a book. Do you want to let the listeners know a quick preview as to what your book contains? Yeah, so it's right here. Pure OCD. So pure OCD, just to remind you, is not a diagnosis. It's not a scientific term. It really just is the community name for individuals who have intrusive thoughts and mental rituals. This term can be, sometimes can be um, highly debated in scientific uh, in, in, in scientific circles, but for those of us that live with OCD, this term can be life-saving. And the reason why is because it's inclusive. It helps us feel like we belong to a community where the media kind of rejects um, and makes fun of. Um, we, when you hear that someone has pure OCD, you're like, I know exactly what you're going through. It's, it, you know, I can relate to you on such a different level. Um, so this book is a memoir. Um, I came out with this, I guess it was like three years ago. It took me five years to write it and to get it out because it was so, I was so scared of how people would respond to it because this is a super shameful disorder. Um, but actually being able to put the story out there um, how people read it, reduce the shame, which is so what I did not expect to happen. So I want to encourage anybody out there who wants to share their story and their the barrier is shame. I want to encourage you. Um, you will have quite the opposite response because there's so many people out there that need to hear what you've been through. There's, we are, the statistics are massively skewed. It says two to 3% of the population and, and because it's misdiagnosed, because it's, you know, people don't even know what OCD really is. It's very, very much higher and people need to know they're struggling with OCD and that there's help. That's a great point. Yeah. And now just to ask the last sort of question is, we ask all our, all our guests this and uh, it's never been the same. We say this every week, but it's never actually been the same answer. Um, it's a very broad question, but just one, if you could offer us one tip to improve health for people in any way. To improve health in any way. It can be. Um, it can be mental health, physical health. It can be activity. It can be whatever. 
tip to improve health. Um, this is like the one question that's going to stop me. <laughs> Let me just look at it in the realm of mental health. There's one thing that you could improve for mental health. Um, don't be afraid to share the story. Yeah. Because kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, there's such a stigma around mental health, but you have no idea the people in your life right now that are struggling and they're too scared to tell you. They're too scared to tell you. They're too scared to tell anybody. And you can be the one person that opens a conversation and because you are willing to share, you could change someone's life. Not to mention your own, because one person with a mental health struggle has a lot of shame. Two people who know that both people have this same, uh, mental health struggle, shame diminishes a little bit. The more you add people, the more the light comes in and the shame really does just melt away. Cause there's nothing shameful about having a mental health diagnosis. You just have to know that you're not alone and you have to know that the person next to you is probably struggling too. Yeah, and I think that's the theme of today's episode. And I challenge the listeners, if you have listened to the episode and just to share this with one person in your life, and that could be the difference between that person, that person might need it or that person might know someone that needs it. So just sharing this episode to give people more knowledge and understanding around this topic would be perfect. But where can the listeners find you, Chrissy? Um, so, um, I'm on YouTube at, uh, Chrissy Hodges, pure OCD advocate. That's probably my main vehicle, I guess, is where most of my stuff is. Um, you can find me on Instagram at pure O Chrissy, or you can find me at chrissyhodges.com or ocdpeers.com if you're interested in group, um, group support. And I also want to just say, um, to take it a step further, sharing your story could be the difference between life and death. Because if one person during that 12 years had shared their story about OCD, I would never have attempted suicide. I would have gone immediately and gotten help. Yeah. That's how powerful your story can be. Yeah, that's the best way to sum it up. That's a great way to sum up the podcast. And yeah, just like to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything for the Five hundred thousandth time, probably at this point in your career. Um, but thanks so much for sharing. Honestly, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, it's great to invite someone on that I've personally used as a as a measurement for what's going on in my life. So, uh, thanks so much for doing what you're doing, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. And and we hope our listeners have enjoyed the episode. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure.